Matthew 27, 32 to 56. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came back to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he could not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments amongst them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head... They put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabach, Fani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and rocks were split. The tombs also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's just weird, isn't it, really? When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, the mother 
of the sons of Zebedee. I want to look first uh, at the, the heart of the cross. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, this is uh, Jerusalem. This is Golgotha uh, down here. Just give you an idea of the geography that we're looking at. Because at the heart of the Christian uh, gospel is the cross of Jesus. But I don't know whether you're aware of this, but around 30,000 people were crucified around the era of Jesus. And no one really does know the other 29,997. that The one of the 30,000 most remembered is Jesus. And the roads around the Roman Empire, um, particularly in the land of Palestine, would have been littered with crosses of executed criminals. So you just pass them and there they were. But one cross, one death is redemptive. And that is the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. So why was it so important? Why was it so significant? Why should a crucifixion of Jesus be singled out for what is now worldwide recognition? For that, we have to look at the meaning of the cross. And as you read the narrative that that Matthew writes in chapter uh, 27, he describes the detail of the crucifixion of Jesus. He describes the trial, the false accusations, the conspiracy, the animosity of the Jewish people, the blackmail pot towards Pilate, the political intrigues of the high priests and Herod. And he describes how it was that Jesus uh, was tried, how it was that he was mocked, how it was that he was put to shame how that he was paraded through uh, the streets as a criminal and finally crucified on the cross at Golgotha. But of all that account, the question really is, what is the meaning of all that stuff? What is the meaning of it all? Why is it significant? In fact, just why? Well, we could go to the Old Testament And uh, in the Old Testament, we would find that there are prophets who would speak about the death of a Messiah. We could go to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, where we'd find animals that were offered as substitutes, as it were, for punishment for sins uh, deserved. There is certainly loads of teaching in the Old Testament about the death of Jesus. There is the scapegoat as well, symbolically, bearing the sins of the people. There's the Day of Atonement, where the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat on behalf of the sins of the people. But that's all in sort of suggestion form. We can get a picture. Or we can go to the New Testament. We can look at Paul and John and Peter and others who, who give us um, a sort of retrospective look back at the cross and say, hey, the cross was about this. And they do it in no uncertain terms. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the best way to look at the cross is the narrative of what happened on the cross. 
Because one moves forward and shows you part of the picture. The other one looks back retrospectively and tells you what it was. But the, but the passages that in the Gospels that tell you about Jesus reveal the cross in spectacular terms. So I want to look at a miracle. I want to look at the miracle of supernatural darkness. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. It's the sixth hour. That's noon. The Jews always started their day at 6 a.m. in the morning. So six hours later, it's noon. The ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. And Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That's nine o'clock. So three hours on the cross have already passed. Can you imagine that? Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. The soldiers had nailed him. They'd placed the sign over his head. And he'd already been suspended there naked so that all these passers-by could scoff and laugh and say whatever they wanted to do. The soldiers, the religious leaders, the, the, the crowd itself could cast insults at him in his humiliation. But during those three hours from, from nine until noon, he uttered three things. I don't know whether they were one each hour or whether they were all together. I don't really know, to be honest. Different people suggest different things and I don't think it matters really, does it? He just said them. But you imagine he's been there for three hours or during those three hours, nailed to the cross. He forgives those that don't know what they're doing. And then he turns to a a thief and says, yes, you will be with me in paradise today. In fact, in just a few hours. And then he turns, doesn't he, and asks, will somebody please just take care of my mum? In three hours, three short statements broke the silence of the cross and what outstanding statements they are. From a man feeling intense agony and pain from the crucifixion itself, grace is poured out. Forgive them. Love them. Eternal life is given to them. In pain, what grace. And as the second three hours begin at noon, and the sun reaches its height in the sky. An outstanding thing takes place. Verse 45. There was darkness over all the land. It was dark at noon. Oregon uh, a Church Early Father alludes uh, to this uh, into a statement by the Roman historian Flagon. 
who mentions the darkness in his writings, and Tortillian also wrote to some pagans mentioning the darkness, saying, Which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your own archives to this day? Historians are are saying, Hey, it went dark for a bit. There's an ancient writing that says, and I quote, Many went around with lamps, supposing that it was night, and fell over. In a so-called report to Pilate, to Tiberius, the governor, it assumes that the emperor, even over there, was aware that it was dark in the whole of the world. They're communicating together, saying, it's dark, and he's going, yeah, it was dark, wasn't it? Amazing. They lighted lamps from noon until three o'clock. It was supernatural darkness. We know God can do this, because the Old Testament tells us that God can interfere with the sun. We don't need to go there. We know that. But there's a wonderful Greek description of what was going on. <laughs> and it, it means there was darkness, literally means to fail utterly. That God caused the sun to fail utterly. And if you talk to any scientist today and say what is the most powerful thing that you know in the world or the universe they will say the sun they will tell you of its power and all the stuff that goes with that that whether it's this and that size and the amount of i don't know stuff that comes from it got no idea but i just want us to know this christians or non-christians hey our god causes that to fail utterly He looks to it and he goes, hey, you, fail. And he goes, hmm. Extraordinary. Doesn't that make you think a little bit of awe of the God that you worship? Sometimes, you know, God, he can be, hey, he's my mate, my friend, love him, great to be pals with him. This is the God that looks at the sun and goes, fail, and the sun goes, okay. And we need to have that part of our nature. You know, we need to have the part of our nature that says, do not mess with God. It's not just, hey, it's great to be a Christian, isn't it? No, God causes the sun to fail. And this was the first comment that God makes about the cross. The Bible uses darkness, doesn't it, as a symbol of judgment. Isaiah speaks of the darkness as a sign of judgment. A number of times Joel speaks of darkness as a sign of judgment. The prophet Amos, Zephaniah all speak of darkness as signs of judgment. So do Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and so does the book of Acts. And spectacularly, so does uh, the book of Revelations. And just so that you, just so in case I've forgotten any, so does Hebrew and Hebrews and two Peter. I just missed those out in my notes. Forgot I had to go back to them. Just so that you're sure, they all describe darkness as judgment. But I can think of no better passage that explains it better than Amos. Amos uh, chapter eight and verse nine. The prophet Amos says this, It will come about in this day. So there was a day ordained before the foundations of the world when the sun would fail. 
And the prophet says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and the earth dark in broad daylight. If you were a, a, a sort of scholar of Old Testament prophecy, wouldn't you be, excuse me, bricking it at this point? I can't go on a bit further and explain. But you would, wouldn't you? If you knew that verse, and you think, why on earth did the whole people not remember this verse? You would have been shaking at this point, wouldn't you? Darkness, in the words of the prophet, was to emphasize the terror, the absolute terror that it would be for wicked men to face judgment and the wrath of God. Because darkness is a sign of judgment. And God was saying by the darkness that the cross was a place of judgment, that this was the hours of judgment. And this was not a judgment in future time, but a judgment right here and right now. While certainly it does depict a darkness that will come, this was its own judgment. It was not a preview of judgment to come. This was the judgment of sin upon Jesus. William Hendrickson uh, puts it this way. He says this, The darkness means judgment, the judgment of God upon our sins, his wrath, as it were, burning itself into the very heart of Jesus. So that as our substitute suffered the most intense agony and indescribable woe, terrible isolation or forsakenness. And God only judges one thing. He judges sin. He doesn't judge anything else. This then is the visible judgment of sin. The public, worldwide, visible judging of sin. We're watching Jesus without sin experience the judgment of his Father for our sin. For three hours, the judgment that should have come upon me, yours, mine, the universe, history, for three hours, Hours. Such was the weight of this judgment upon his sin that the world goes dark. Doesn't it make you think so? Well, I just did it. It was a little white lie. What? No. My sin caused the world to go dark. My sin. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offences against God. 1 Peter 2.25, who in his own self bore our sin in his body. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered the just for the unjust. 1 John 4.10, God sent his son to be the atonement for our sins. Galatians 3 verse 13, he was made a curse for us. 
So the miracle of darkness is a demonstration that Jesus was being judged for my sin. And since he didn't have any sin of his own to be judged, the Bible makes it clear that this is the period of time when he is in our place and bearing our judgment. But we better not leave it there because we're all going to go home a bit depressed. So, there's another miracle. And that's the miracle of divine separation. That has no human explanation. And frankly, no human comprehension. See, I can't even say the word. But the reality of truth in this is beyond our realm. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the last moment of the three hours of darkness. The fury of God is almost spent. Judgment almost is over, but will finally be over when the sun dies. The final piece of judgment is the death and as his life comes to a close Jesus cries out with a loud voice we would now say Jesus screamed Jesus screamed you would wouldn't you (laughs) if you were bearing the sin of the world Wouldn't you shout? Wouldn't it make you go, ow, just a bit? Here is the sin of the world placed on the Saviour, the one who knew no sin, and he cries out in a loud voice. I won't do it because I don't want to wake some of you up. For six hours... He had been enduring immeasurable agony, not only in the physical dimension, but much more in the spiritual dimension. He was feeling the full force of God's anger over sin, and it was placed on him, which would finally bring about his death. But as the sin-bearing judgment comes to a climax. He seems to gather one last piece of strength and expresses profound separation from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew preserves it, part in Hebrew, part in Aramaic. The statement uh, was what the psalmist predicted he would say. Psalm 22 verse 1, David wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, and uh, said in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what the cry demonstrates is a spiritual separation that Jesus was enduring from his Father. And this is a miracle, folks. This is a miracle. It is a miracle in the sense that it's sort of, I'm going to try and explain it, it's a reverse miracle. I don't know what that means, but it's just, I'll try and explain that. 
I don't know any other way of explaining it. So if you're listening to this on iTunes, please forgive me, no brains. It's a supernatural separation that basically is impossible. It can't happen because the Trinity can't be divided. Because the first member of the Trinity, the Father, and the second member of the Father share the same essence. They are God. They are unique individuals, yet they are one. They can't be separated. And yet Jesus experiences what can't, what can't happen. It's a miracle. He's separated, but he's not. He's feeling something. It's something that you understand. It's important that you understand that in crying out this last cry, Jesus is not being faithless. He's not saying, Lord, I've got here, I've served you all my days, and now this doesn't make sense. I'm not sure that I can trust you. Why have you forsaken me? No. Psalm 22 tells us that right at the end that God will vindicate his servant that his servant will reign over his enemies. In Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not faithlessness. In fact, it is the greatest cry of faith in the entire experience. In fact, I want to suggest it's the greatest cry of faith ever. He trusts despite the evidence to the contrary that God will vindicate him. This is not a cry of surprise. Jesus doesn't get to the cross and say, oh no, something's gone wrong here. That wasn't supposed to happen. This took me by surprise. I didn't know this was coming. So when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he doing? Well, I believe that Jesus is drawing our attention to two things to the isolation to the sense of isolation from the favor and the love of his heavenly father which is willingly enduring on our behalf jesus is saying in quoting the words of those great psalmists my dear friends in jesus my brothers and sisters who i am redeeming i want you to understand that I am experiencing what the psalmist thought that he experienced. I am experiencing the loss of my father's face and favor. I'm under his, I was there. I was under his hand. I was his son. I knew his love. I knew his voice. I walked with him. We talked together. And suddenly, it's gone. It is all gone. It is withdrawn because I now am a curse. I am sin. I am being the penalty for sin. It is pleasing him to bruise me. I am being bruised for your transgressions. I am being put to, as the Bible says, to grief. 
I find this terrible isolation sometimes just affects me quite deeply, to be honest. I, in, even in preparing this, I just had to stop and think that here was a person that had never, ever known anything but intense love, favour, companionship, friendship, whatever you wanted to do, had only ever knew this. But now, now, he's isolated from the one, from the one that he knew. And I'm ever so sorry, but it just gets to me that he should do that for me. I don't believe that we can know fully the mystery or the misery of that separation. It is difficult, I think, to understand it or to put it into words. Obviously, Jesus didn't cease to exist. He didn't cease to be God. And he could only exist as God, yet he was cut off from the fellowship of his Father. (laughs) Though never ceasing to be the same nature as his Father, that's the miracle. Sin had literally separated him from the one that he couldn't be separated from. It is miraculous and outstanding. Remember in John, he tells us, uh, in John chapter 16, verse 32, that Jesus already told his disciples that they were going to desert him. And he says to them, in a word of encouragement, in verse 32, in the Gospel of John, even though you desert me, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And that's very poignant, because that Jesus told his disciples that, and yet he knew that there would be a moment in time when he would look up to his Father, and it would be as if his Father was not there. He was facing instead the epicenter of the earthquake, of the judgment of God. And it's as if what he did with you and I is that he pulled us in an eternal line behind him and said, now stand in a line. No, you're out a bit. If you stand out a little bit, you're just going to catch a bit. Stand in. Excuse me, Phil Harmon? You're going to have to duck down. You're just too big. I won't go on to the any of the wide ones. And then he walks. And he, and he puts his arms out. And he makes himself as big as he possibly can. And through him and behind him is a line of eternity of people. And you and I are in that queue. And he says, throw it at me, for you will not get at the line behind me. So Phil, duck. Because it's coming. And he just takes it. He just takes it. It is extraordinary. (laughs) I'm going to absorb everything in your place. And that's what the isolation is talking about. But when he's not, not only is he doing that, he's pointing to a God's refusal to answer. It's the second thing. 
if you look at the first verses in Psalm 22, there are anguished cries from the psalmist. The psalmist is crying out because he doesn't feel that God is answering him. Been there? Yeah? Prayed that one? Lord, I've prayed this and it just seems as if you never answer my prayers. Maybe he is, but you just want him to answer the way that you want him to answer. <laughs> but sometimes it can feel like that. Can't we pray big prayers. And it's as if the Lord is not answering our prayer. That's the agony of the, of the psalmist David in Psalm 22. The psalmist is crying out. And here Jesus is emphasizing that on Calvary. There was no voice of his father for him. What? And Jesus knew that, that God throughout history had spoken to his people. He knew that he'd gone and spoken to Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. He knew that God, that his father had even said to him at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He knew that when he climbed up those mountains early in the morning and left his disciples, and the Bible says, well in the Old Testament it says, to commune with his father, he'd heard his father speaking to him, reassuring him, saying, come on, now go and move towards Jerusalem. But there on Calvary, there is no voice. There is no answer to Jesus' cry. And it's here so that we might understand this. Though God has so often proved himself to be God by coming to the rescue of his people, he does not come to the rescue of his son at this point. He cries, Lord, Father, Father, my God, my God. And there is absolute quiet. Quiet. This is a man that knew the voice of his father. Now it's quiet. It's too deep for us to really understand. Hendrickson said it better than I've ever heard it before. He said, hell came to Calvary that day. Hell came to Calvary that day and the Saviour descended into it and bore our, our horrors in his place. Therefore could not hear the voice of his Father. And Matthew shows us this. Why does he show you this? Because he wants you to know that what Jesus was doing was by no, was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It didn't catch him by surprise. He chose, he chose to do this in your place. He chose to stand there and to, and to take upon himself the agony of not knowing his father's voice so that you will never be able to go through that, so that you and I will be able to enter boldly and hear the father's voice. He was silent. He didn't hear so that you might know a God that will never be silent and who would always hear you and incline your ear towards you. What a saviour. What a father. Isn't it a measure of the love? Isn't it also a measure, though, of the sinfulness of sin? The darkness, the judgment. 
the sense of isolation, the sense of the Father not speaking. Is that a measure of the sinfulness of sin? If this is what it takes to forgive sin, how wicked must my sin really be? I don't know if you've ever considered that. It's funny because I'm from a strict Baptist background. And in my background, it was to highlight the wickedness of sin. And I moved into charismatic things. And what we do in charismatic things is that we don't actually say any longer that sin is wicked. No, because Jesus is the lover of my soul. We must have like a caressing relationship with Jesus. He must come and stroke my hair and rub my back and make me feel happy. And, there's some, and I knew that. And I actually think that actually they are right and so are we. That we need to know that we are sinful and the wickedness of sin and we need to know grace together. And we should never flippantly look upon our sin, my sin, at all. Can we ever act as if, well, it's not so big a deal, is it, that Jesus dealt with my sin? It is the biggest deal in history that Jesus dealt with your sin. We mustn't ever say, oh, there's always grace. I can go do what I like, get legless, smoke that, drink that, murder that, kill that, say that, abuse that, do that, live like that, and tomorrow, hey, hey, I can be forgiven. Now, come on, guys. Look at the, what sin does to a person. Look at the price that was being paid so that you might know forgiveness of sin. It's not light. Don't sweep sin under the carpet if it's not, as if it's nothing. Your Savior died for that sin. It cost the Savior the volcano of the wrath of God. I hope that at this point I'm going to put Phil Harmon on the spot and prove to him that I am a better strict Baptist than him. Because in my day we used to sing a hymn because what this preacher would do is that he would preach on sin and then we'd always finish with a sin hymn. See, that was how it was. Because we, what you needed to do is go out destroyed, you know. Preach on sin, then sing about sin, then have the benediction and we'd all go home. No. So here, Phil Harmon, just for you, is the hymn that I believe that you might know. It's called Smith, uh, Stricken, Smitten and Afflicted. Do you know it? We'll, shall we sing it at the end? No, we won't. Here it is. Look at that. 1804. But do you know, I believe that it has a point. And I believe we need to understand the point. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Hey, rhymes. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, the Son of Man and the Son of God. If you want to see how wicked sin is, the hymn writer is just saying, just look at the one who died for you and look at what is going on at the point on the cross. If you want to know how horrible sin is in the science of God, look who he sends to be his substitute for the penalty of sin. And Jesus just, Matthew just wants to be, us to be reminded of the greatness and the sinfulness of sin. But more than that, 
He wants us to know the greatness of Jesus' love. And Matthew asks us to look at what Jesus willingly endured and then to consider one thing, the Father's love for us. It all begins with the Father. And we mustn't ever just say this cross was about Jesus. It wasn't. It was about the, also the agony of a father and a father's love and what it feels to be a father. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son. That's agony in itself, isn't it? I so love the world. I so hate sin. So I give the only thing that I've got. Romans 8, 32. He who, what? Spared not his only son, but delivered him up from it for us all. How shall we not freely with him give us all things? Where's the emphasis? The emphasis is on the work of God the Father. On the cross. And I want to ask you, when you look at Calvary, Do you allow it to move you? Do you allow the Son to get to you? Do you let the Father's love get in there? Please, don't be hard-hearted in regard to the cross. And when we look at Calvary, we should be moved by it. We're moved not only because of what Jesus is doing, but actually to what the Father is experiencing too. And we can make an enormous mistake if we just say, hey, this is just about this one person on a cross. No. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is also asking us to take into consideration What the Father is enduring. The Father is enduring on our behalf. You see, the Father loves, wants to, longs to answer his Son. Jesus is is his Son and his Son. How many of you, come on parents, if you heard, Dad, Dad, Mother, mother, why have you, would you not run at that? Would you not do everything in your power to go and and be there? You know that cry, parents. The father longs to answer. The father longed to answer the mob. When the mob came towards his son. When the soldiers strung him up on the cross. The father longed to go to the, the soldiers. How dare you? When the opponents of Jesus came and spoke to him in a particular way, do you not think that the father longed to go towards the son? When they looked at Jesus on the cross and went, this guy is a lunatic. Do you think he wanted to come down and I'll show you what lunatic really means. When they strung him up there and said, he's no different to the criminal on the right and the criminal on the left. How do you think the father was thinking? 
When the priest said, he's just a heretic and a, a rebel rouser and a revolutionary. How do you think the father was thinking? That? Do you not think that everything within him was wanting to run to, the, to rescue his own son? And when he looked at his son on the cross and saw his one and only son, the last person in the universe that he actually wanted to see on that cross was his son. He saw the son of his love. He saw his son doing something beyond whatever anybody else had done before. He'd always been a glorious son. Can you imagine that? He'd always been a great son. He'd always been an obedient son. He'd always been great company, great to be with. They were inseparable. And there's never been a time in history or will ever be a time in in the whole of history where the son would not want to shout down from heaven and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Of course he wanted to love him. Of course he wanted to glorify him. Of course he wanted to honor him and exalt him. And then, but he says, nothing. He's silent. And he says nothing, why? Because he loves you. The Father withholds everything so that you might know everything. He will not answer his son because the son has taken your place, has borne your penalty. The son is, is under a ban, as it were. He's off limits. He's under the court curse. He's made a sin. He's pushed to the edge of the cosmos. He's isolated. He's in darkness where you should have been. And there's no answer for the son because that is the strategy of the father to redeem you. Extraordinary love. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that he would have been down there with a mighty army. Because I'm that sort of Dad, I am the sort of dad that when the kids used to come home at five and said, little Billy so-and-so said this and that sort of stuff, I'll say, we will talk to Billy so-and-so in the morning at the school gates. And the kids would say, but Billy so-and-so's dad, he's 75 feet tall and he's a, he's a, he's a wrestler and a boxer in, a, in the fairgrounds as they go around. And I'll go, I don't care how he is, he cannot talk to you like that. And we've all been like that, haven't we? We've all come to the defense. Something rises up within us to come to the defense of our children. And he says, no, the greater thing is that my son endures that so that you can know eternal life. Folks, you'll never understand the cross till you know how intense the love of the Father is for you. (laughs) 
and how the cross shows not just Jesus getting the Father to love you. It's not what just Jesus, oh, I'll do this so that you can know. Not like that at all. But the cross shows the intensity of God's love for you, the a Father's love. I want to say this reverently. God does not love you less than he loves his son. And he will give his son in your place so that you would know his love and know it forever. Do you remember when the Bible says this? And I know that I've finished with this before and I probably might finish with this again. Are you ready, Phil? The Bible says this. The Apostle Paul comes up with a conclusion. He says this. Do you remember this? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is the work of Jesus and the Father on the cross. And what he says is that whatever the world offers and whatever the world does and whatever you have and don't have, the Apostle Paul says this, my grace is sufficient for you. And I want to ask you this. You've heard me say this before. I want to to say this to you. Actually, the cross will suffice. If the cross doesn't suffice in your world and you, want to, you've got, you are a Christian with a list or a Christian with a book of requests, then there will always be something that lets you down. But if you can come to the point that the Apostle Paul will be, then all the other things will fall into perspective. My grace is sufficient for you. It will suffice. Actually, it's the most ridiculous statement in history or in the universe. Because the, tr- the truth is that the world will tell us that everything else will suffice. But there is a spiritual strengthening, enabling dimension that comes to us when we grasp the magnitude of the cross. And the reason sometimes that strength doesn't strengthen you when you come to face all sorts of obstacles is that the, is that the cross and the resurrection and what Jesus did and the fathers is sort of sometimes down there and the list is up here. And you have to say to the list, list be gone in Jesus' name, cross be elevated because it is only that that is sufficient for you. It is only that. The cross is sufficient. It provides everything. Absolutely everything. It's more than sufficient. My appeal for you, to you and me, is this. Please make the cross sufficient for you. So when you get up in the morning, (laughs) just go, that is mad. Jesus. When you get up tomorrow, you just look, Father, it is balmy. Just walk in the shadow of the cross. When you go to work, it's the cross. When you get old, it's the cross. You know, when you have pro- it's the cross. Well, what about so and so? So and so was really nasty. It's the cross. Well, what about this? This has all gone wrong. Hmm? It's the cross. 
And until we put that in its rightful place and elevate the wonderful love of the Father, the outstanding love of Jesus, we will never know the strengthening that comes with it. Here's my appeal. Folks, my grace is sufficient for you. Amen? Amen. Okay.